Um, Greg Ross. Yes. Do you know what this is? What's that? It's the last host radio show podcast. Yeah. And it also happens to be episode number four. Isn't that wonderful? Episode four? Gary, does that mean we'll be going for a month? We have. Maybe even more than that, because some of us have been dragging the chain. <laughs> well, I tell you what, doesn't it, isn't it fantastic? It's, it's gone so quickly. Yes, it has gone by quickly. Episode four, you've got a wonderful lineup of guests. Uh, these are people that you've actually spoken to mm, mm. Uh, in just recent times. Give me the rundown. Jeff Rowe first up. Jeff's uh, passionate uh, about human rights and social justice and inclusion. He uh, has a Bachelor of Social Work uh, from the University of Queensland, and he's CEO of Aged and Disability Advocacy Australia, Gary, which is ADA, commonly known as. It's an aged care and disability advocacy and rights service based in Queensland. Uh, Jeff's had 40 years in human services and is a Churchill Fellowship recipient in 2018. We speak about human rights here with aged care and aged people, and I started off by asking Jeff if what ADA is doing is working. Look, that's a really good question. I, th- I think one of the um, one of the assumptions that people have about the work that we do is that our client group are a consistent group of people. Uh, I remember when I started at ADA, well, nine years ago, and I talked to some of the staff and said, "Tell me about, particularly the older people that we um, that we work with." And they described them as a grateful generation. They're a generation who didn't generally complain, who accepted it as their lot. And I guess what we've seen over recent years is that the baby boomers are starting to knock on the door of aged care and no one's ever described them as grateful. They're a cohort of people that if they don't like what they see, they demand change. So, you know, I think there's there's change happening at that level. We've also just come out of, you know, a, a very significant aged care royal commission, which made, you know, 140-odd recommendations about what aged care should look like in the future. And essentially their opening line was that the aged care system is broken. We've, in the last couple of months, have seen the release of the Disability Royal Commission report, um, and it didn't have a lot uh, of good things to say about the disability sector either. So, you know, we are in a period of change. Um, I'm an optimist, I'm a a glass half full guy, um, but there's a lot to be done. You are a glass half full, and I guess in this role, Jeff that approach would be needed. You'd see a lot of um, challenges across different spectrums or spheres, I guess, with disability, aged, and also First Nations people. Is there a common thread there that brings them all together? Look, I I guess one of the common threads for me is about people having human rights. Uh, And those human rights, you know, they should exist, you know, whether you're an older person, whether you're a person with a disability, a, a, a First Nations person, a, a, you know, a, a veteran, you know, someone that works in McDonald's. You know, we are, all are born with human rights and they're not something that, you know, A, that we should relinquish and B, you know, it's um, they're not something that should be taken away. And I guess, you know, Greg, for you and, you know, the cohort of people that, that you spend a lot of time with, you know, they've fought very hard to make sure that we have those human rights and that we have the lifestyle that we'd like to have. So, you know, it's a bit concerning when you see some of that being eaten away, you know, within the country, within the service systems that are supposed to support people. It's almost a, a disrespect, I guess, to the legacy uh, of uh, of those that have um, served the country, obviously, to maintain our lifestyle, living standards and democracy. 
And I guess any anything less would be seen as a, a bit of disrespect, not only to to those involved, but also to 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 the country itself. It can be a better country by looking after all of these people that you represent. Yeah, look, they um, you hear the saying that um, you know the value of a society can be judged by the way that it looks after its most vulnerable, and you know I think this is a, this is a good example, and you know making that veteran connection, which um, you know I. I I suppose it's just come out now through the conversation. You know, it is really disrespectful for you know for that you know the lives lost, the effort, um, you know, the commitment that's been made to give us you know the sort of country that we want to have. And look, I, I guess you know disability is always just a heartbeat away. You know, any of us can acquire a disability at any point of of the day. Um, and you know, getting old, I remember hearing someone describe it as. We all want to live a long life, but none of us wants to get old. And you know, that sort of that it's that old side of the the equation that um, people you know know that you know whether it's ageism, not quite sure what it is, but you know often people as they age are seen are being seen as unable to make you know the decisions that they made five years ago, two years ago, and you know a lot of people within the aged care system have full cognition. You know, we, we tend to think of people in aged care as only those who have dementia, but there are a lot of people who know, you know, their their minds are sharp, it's their bodies that are that are failing them. So, you know, to say that you can't make decisions is is really very unfair. We see examples of this, I guess, ageism. So confirming that ageism does exist, Jeff. It's alive and well. Even at my tender age, um, there have been examples of that. Um, thankfully, in a in a good meaning way, but also seeming to to us to be a little patronising. So, so human rights. We go back to the human rights aspect of of what ADA does for the elderly and disabled and First Nations in that area. What is the situation now? Um, is it getting better? Is is what's what's actually the situation with with human rights for the elderly at the moment? Yeah, look, I think it's hard to know. You know, in terms of the level of abuse you know there's been um studies into elder abuse and you know they talk disturbingly that something like one in six australians over the age of 65 will experience abuse in the next 12 months uh, mm -hmm. that's a frightening experience if we talked about in a different cohort there'd be a, there'd be absolutely an, an uproar i think there's a greater awareness now and i think that means that you know well, whether it's the baby boomers are yelling out or whether it's you know there are now systems in place where people who are experiencing that loss of human rights have an opportunity to reach out and get support. So, you know, organisations like ADA, uh, you know, we often use the term giving you a voice. We're making sure that the older, the voice of the older person or the, or the voice of the person with a disability is heard. Um, you know, we've seen lots of examples and, you know, a lot of it happens in the context of doing, you know, the or trying to do the right thing, as, as you said. But, um, yeah, I, I often talk about when people check into aged care, they're required to check in their rights, and that means their rights to make basic decisions about, you know, their daily lives. And, you know, just because you've changed accommodation doesn't mean you've changed your state of mind. And you know, I guess one of the other lines I, I use a bit is that um, cognition, having the ability to make decisions is not the same as being pregnant. You know, when you're pregnant, you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. Um, but where you have impaired capacity, 
um, you know, you can still make a whole range of decisions. And really over the last five, 10 years, there's been a strong push for us to look at supported decision-making. So that's about sitting down with the person and working through and helping them make the decisions that they can make rather than the older model that says you can't make any decisions, we'll find someone that can make them for you. Mm. So a lot better outcome for the individual, a lot better in terms of quality of life and, you know, certainly in terms of human rights, it's a lot more respectful. How do people get in contact with ADA? Look, ADA is part of the Older Persons Advocacy Network or OPAN and we've got a national 1800 number, probably the simplest 1800 number in the country. It's 1800 700 600. So, you know, if you call from Victoria, you'll get Elder Rights in Victoria. You call from South Australia, you'll get ARIS. Uh, you call from Queensland and you'll get ADA. Um, so we're all part of that network. So that's probably the easiest way of, of getting in touch. It's a free call number. You know, our services, they're confidential, they're free, they're independent of both government and of service providers. So, you know, it's someone that can be, you know, on your side, um, you know, when you're feeling like no one's listening. A very important thing too, Jeff, and to give hope and to give some um, clarity and strength to to those that need it. 1-800-700-600, give them a call. And Jeff, Jeff Rowe, it's been fantastic as usual speaking with you and um, we look forward to regular chats to keep people updated and, and listeners informed of what's going on in your, your sector. Thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. When you feel like no one's listening... They're very poignant words, Greg. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed, Gary. And I guess to give hope and strength and independence to those in need, an important factor in aged care and disability service, Gary. We're glad you're there. You're with the Last Post Radio Show podcast. I'm Gary Mack, and uh, he's Greg T. Ross, and welcome back. And, uh, yeah, look, uh, Gary, we've got uh, another great interview coming up with uh, Professor Ben Wadham, who I met a couple of years ago, and uh, also during the Royal Commission into Veteran and Defence Suicide, which uh, which he attended, and, and I did also. Ben is Director of Open Door through Flinders University, which uh, aims to help veterans and provide some... Uh, clarification in their rights etc etc a wonderful person and it's a wonderful chat the open door um i established this in uh 2020 um but i've been doing research in the field of defense and um veteran and even first responder research for much longer um we know that this group uh, faces um particular opportunities and challenges and so do their families so um the, um, the the field broadly is very dominated by the sort of biomedical legal model. And um, this tends to lock us into adversary and um, diagnostics and treatment. And uh, uh, so, so Open Door is about establishing a social health approach, which is a strength-based approach. And it's looking at building on the capacity of veterans, understanding them as sovereign assets that have so much more to give back to society after their service. So... Uh, that that kind of um, focus has um, led us into work for the uh, Royal Commission. Um, we uh, last year we produced a large report for them called Mapping uh, Service and Transition to Self Harm and Suicide, Suicide Suicidality, um, and it really covered um, all the range of risk factors that veterans experience um, 
which may lead to those outcomes. The Royal Commission uh, has been working for over two years now, and um, it's made some uh, really strong uh, inroads already. And recently it was uh, seeking to extend um, its uh, tenure by 12 months. That's but, right, uh, the, Australian yeah, yeah. Government, the Australian government sort of come back with three months, um, which, uh, you know, is a little bit disappointing uh, because uh, it's such an important issue. We're not going to have another Royal Commission in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the work should be done now. Um, now, one of the reasons why uh, the, what they want the extension um, is because of um, the uh, some some of the barriers they've been facing by defence, particularly, but some other government departments and and, and lesser extent DBA and um, uh, though the defence particularly been sort of um, putting up barriers to getting access to various documents and dragging their feet on stuff. So um, that's that's why that's one of the key reasons they want the uh, the extension. And um, just just quickly, um, Mick Cowdis, the Commissioner Nick Cowdis, um Took the extraordinary step of um, holding a uh, press conference at the National Press Club last year uh, to talk about that exact um, issue, and, and I attended that uh, session. Look, Ben, is there any any hope of this extension of three months? I mean, it just seems a bit uh, bit strange to grant an, an extension and then not provide the twelve months. What is there any hope of getting it stretched out to twelve months from from this stage or not? No, I don't, I don't think so. That's probably probably it. I can't see. You know, governments don't like to go back on their uh, decisions. They have provided two extra commissioners, mm-hmm. so the private sessions will be opening again, mm-hmm. um, which is great because um, people have to tell their stories, and um, that will uh, enable that will mean that we uh, get a, a fuller picture, and um, it'll democratise the process to some extent. So that's that's a that's a good outcome. Where where's the royal commission heading to next? Yeah, so the next uh, and last hearing block is in March uh, in Sydney. Mm-hmm. March in um, Sydney. Do you know what date? Uh, I think it's the first two weeks in March, but um, okay. yeah, take that, with a, take that with a bit of caution. Yeah, well, I'll be up there at that time, actually, so that might fit in. What's the reason behind the, the new commissioners and what's the likely mm. impact? Yeah, well, I guess, I guess the other reason for asking for an extension is just the uh, sheer volume of, um, of veterans and family members and, and, and veteran sector um uh, community uh, that still have stories to tell. And There's an still amazing have... amount, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the uh, extension will enable um, to, I mean, you know, some of the people that I've been working with, some of the veterans who who wanted to tell their story didn't get a chance, and so this is great that uh, now many of those veterans will have a chance to tell their stories in a private session, so one-on-one. I mean, the, the Royal Commission has been, um, I think, has been very compassionate um, and very sensitive to veterans and their families, um, and and the, and overwhelmingly, I've only heard good things about those private sessions and the kind of compassion that uh, the commissioner has shown. Mm. And that's why the new two commissioners are on board. And it's too too early to tell what's going on there because that was just announced late last year. But um, two very experienced commissioners um, who will help to um, uh, address that um, backlog of personal testimonies. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, the more the better in that regard, and hopefully, uh, hopefully that can have some uh, fruition. Um, we spoke obviously with the uh, the Veterans Defence and uh, Suicide Commission, and the awareness of transition or the uh, the difficulties behind transition being a major player in this Ben, um, which is why we we keep an eye on this continually and the different 
offshoots of that transitional problem. We look at the ARC veteran suicide study. How, how did that pan out? Can you tell us a bit about that too? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, Open Door um, last year was successful in, in um, being awarded uh, nearly half a million dollars to conduct a um, study on veteran suicide in Australia, um, entitled Veteran Suicide Investigating the Social and Historical Dimensions. Mm-hmm. So um, as um, I mentioned before, Open Door is trying to come at this from a much more holistic perspective than just mental health and, um, uh, you know, uh, pathology mm. and, and uh, diagnostics and treatment. Mm. Um, the Royal Commission will come to an end, um, but that's not the end of the need for research or for understanding the, this phenomenon. Uh, the Royal Commission has been, um, you know, has had to delimit its scope. So uh, it's looking at uh, suicide over the last sort of 25 years or so. Um, our study goes back to 1914, and um, we will um, investigate uh, the repatriation files of World War One, World War Two, and uh, other conflicts earlier than Vietnam. Um, and then we will conduct um, interviews with uh, veterans who have attempted um, from Vietnam and uh, theaters of operation since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and talk to members of their families if uh, they have passed. Um, and that, that'll all happen within a, a much broader kind of sort of the work that the Royal Commission is doing itself, which is, um, you know, policy, coronial inquests, inquiries, reports, initiatives. You know, well, I think one of the fundamental questions that we're asking is, well, what is a veteran and how do we understand veteran um, trauma uh, and and their struggles? And... That, that's a question because, um, you know, we accept, we just, we sort of accept that that's just uh, taken for granted. Yeah. Um, but in fact, the way we've understood veterans has changed a lot over the last hundred years. And that means their relationship with government and repatriation and services, and then back to the community and family change also. So in some regards, some things haven't changed mm-hmm. to the extent that we want to, but on the other hand, these things are changing consistently. So, yes, yeah, I, I get that feeling from my um, discussions with you over a period of time. And also, um, for an example, this morning I was speaking to a veteran who had been to the edge a number of times and contemplated ending it all, only to pull back. And I have spoken to a number of veterans myself through the magazine that share that same feeling of disconnect, I guess. And we all want people to fulfil their potentials, particularly veterans, as what this is all about, you feel you're making headway here. Yeah, look, uh, we we started this for the pilot study, so we've already done about fifty interviews, and um, largely men um, and some family members. But uh, um, the you know the reasons for we, we, there's a tendency to think that um, you know when you talk about the broken par- broken soldier paradigm, you know that somehow soldiers are broken from their service or their experiences overseas or on deployment, and that. Uh, you know, this is the main cause of um, self-harm and suicidality, but it's far more diverse than that. And, um, you know, some vet- veterans face just normal life challenges as well, and that, that can lead to self-harm and suicidality. But it's also about the culture and systems in defence, and we don't pay enough attention to this. But um, so so if I just take sort of a broad example from some of our interviews, Afghan- Afghanistani, Afghanistan veterans in a war which um, struggles to be legitimate, you know, uh, why are we there? Why are we doing it? And when you get over, when, and when, the, when the veterans go over there, it's like, um, 
well, we're here to do this job, but uh, we're being held back. And one of the key ways that that hold back was that the, that government decided to put so much effort into SF um, activity and um, didn't give the opportunity to do the job that they were trained for for the infantry, for example, just as a kind of broad example, right? So this sort of distrust or this betrayal, this sort of questioning of what my purpose is starts to seep into the experience of deployment and that sits upon the sorts of things that you see and do in those environments. Then you come back to Australia, you've moved back into your unit, your battalion or whatever, and um, there's a whole lot of data that we've got around how uh, people are received back into the battalion, how they're supported and serviced, how they do post-deployment um, briefings. Um, so there's that element. And the last kind of really strong element then is if there are health issues or performance issues and that lead to termination or the discharge or res- resignation, um, how then is the veteran supported on their transition out? And I see, you know, I mean, we are looking at a difficult issue, but I see that there are failures um, and gaps uh, along those three things, which, uh, you know, mean that veteran suicide could be much more preventable. What, with the DVA, what's the response been like from the DVA? Personally, I'm, um, you know, I've, I've had more and more engagement with uh, the DBA leadership in the last couple of years, and I think they're responding uh, very seriously to the uh, the Royal Commission. You know, I mean, I, I'm a veteran myself, right? So I, I loved my service, and um, but at the same time, I want to see the defence side of things improve. I don't think that they are responding to the Royal Commission in the way that DBA are. You know, DBA are responding by just this year. Uh, just over the last sort of six months, we're just putting out a range of initiatives and funding for uh, to to address some of these key sort of issues. Like, like one a really key issue for veterans, um, particularly in arms corps, is how do I get the skills and experience that I had, which is so unique um, and and so honed. How do I get that recognised when I go to go back to the civilian world? Mm. And so, the DBA are funding the recognition of prior learning and credit for prior learning uh, work. Oh. That's really important does help, uh, Ben, with the connection between civilian life and uh, defence serving because of that recognition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, some you know, as veterans, when we leave, we don't... Uh, I can speak from experience this, you know, as a, as a young infantry soldier that left uh, after five years. Uh, signed on the dotted line, see you later. Didn't know what I was going to do. Had no planning. I mean, that's a long time ago, I know, and there are a lot more initiatives in place now, but um, that's still happening. But if we had ways of, one translating those skills and experience so that veterans knew their their strengths mm. so they can sell themselves better to the mm. to um industry but also so that industry can understand us better mm. uh, that's i think that's a really important translation exercise yeah yeah good on you ben wadham professor ben wadham director of open door um serving for the uh, supporting defense personnel uh in health issues and of course uh, more recently, a strong connection and focus on the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide. We know that uh, veterans, the health of veterans is uh, the health of the general community, and we thank you for your efforts, and we know that we will speak again, but uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Last Post radio show. Yeah, thanks, Greg, and thanks to The Last Post. It's a really um, impressive production, and um, you know it does a great job of bringing that information out to the, to the wider community, not just the veteran community, so thank you. Yeah, thanks for those comments, Ben. Uh, certainly a lot of uh, much-needed work being done um, by uh, Open Door to assist veterans in need.
You know, there was a time where I was being sent up for saying my name because when I worked on the wireless, I would say, I'm Gary Mack. And at a Christmas party at a radio station that I worked at, that actually recorded all the times that I had said my name and put them on a piece of tape which ran for hours. And then the entire staff got in on the act as well. <laughs> and there was about 27 staff members who were also saying on said tape, hello, I'm Gary Mack. And I've still got that somewhere. We should put oh, it in just for the hell of it. I'd love to hear that, Gary. That's so much <laughs> a classic. But I think part of the reason, and that is that Gary Mack's such a lovely name to say, Gary Mack. It's like Mel Rock at 2MG. Yeah. Well, I think we may well have gone down that track when you and I were talking about my background. That's right. Uh, that it was at a time when you kind of had to have a slick name. You know, you couldn't... I reckon one of the most delicious names on radio was a, a newsreader at 3AW, and I think she's out doing other things now. She's certainly around. Her name is Anastasia Salamastrakis. And I thought, what a delicious name that is. A lot of syllables... My name came from the days when you were Tom Flint, and that was it. Yeah, that's right. That's you know? right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose at least I've got the T in the middle of mine. Greg. You certainly <laughs> have, old boy. So what was that lady's name again? Anastasia Salamastrakis. Isn't that beautiful? That's so poetic. It is. No, it's a lovely name, and uh, I understand that she's doing other things now. Uh, she's involved with media, mm. but not so much on the wireless. How lovely. Yes. Uh, now, where were we before we were so rudely interrupted by me? Well, uh, oh, this is episode four. That's right. Of the, the last post-radio show podcast. Yes. And uh, with Gary Mack and Greg T. Ross bringing you veterans issues and um, a lot of good interviews with a lot of lovely people. And here comes another one with Greg. Well, yes, thank you, Gary. Stuart O'Neill's an author, um, self-employed. He has written a, a book, Just One Reason, which came out in 2020, but is now used as a as a toolkit, as a go-to toolkit for people having personal battles with um, suicide awareness and prevention. It's a global problem. It doesn't seem to be any getting any better. But here I am talking to Stuart about his very, very much needed book, Just One Reason. The title coming from having just one reason to live is enough. Part of what sort of went along to creating a lot of this is that I'd been uh, at rock bottom a, a number of times and each time uh, I changed my mind, fortunately, and then I started to realise that um, I only needed a reason not to. And and, and so one, one of those times when uh, I was going to go and do something to myself and, uh, and involve another person at that time, which I'm glad that that never eventuated, is I was speeding uh, down dirt roads and driving a bit maniacal type of thing and, and, and going to a particular uh, location. And then on the way there, I've gone like, you know what, knowing my luck, I'll stack the bloody car. Huh? And I hit a tree and people just think that I was driving like a lunatic and they, know, they won't know what my mission was. So I turned around and came home. Okay. And I thought, I need, a, I need another plan. And then another time uh, I was overseas in Taiwan and something pretty devastating happened in my world. And so I started about setting out, making a full a full plan of what I was going to do. And I didn't want my kids to know that I'd suicided Greg. I wanted them to think that their dad would always be, you know, a hero or a dad or whatever you wanted to, you know, how, whatever their view was of me. Mm. I didn't want their last memory of me to be that I'd suicided. So I created this plan 
where I'd look like a dumb tourist that stepped in front of the car. And I thought, no one will ever know the difference. I'm just a, an idiot tourist in a foreign country and, and didn't look right or look left or type of thing. Mm. And then so on my way to do that, I realised how selfish that was for the driver of the vehicle because I didn't know who it was going to be. I just mm. knew. And, and, and in that moment, Greg went like, I'm a bit of a prick if I do that to someone who I've never met before. Now they've got that that burden of having ran someone over who presumably died. And so I changed my mind. And so these sorts of things uh, continue to happen for me. And so at some point in time, um, I realised, like, if that's what's happening for me, it's probably happening for other people too. And um, as a, I'm not a, I'm not an educated person, Greg, like in terms of academic, but I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty smart person in, in problem solving and other things. And so I've gone... If that's happening to me, there's a chance that's happening to someone else. And then I started started to ferment this idea and go like, why don't I create something out of this to try and teach other people? And it doesn't matter what it was. And so even um, for me, which I was unaware of, is during uh, the 2000s, um, Greg, is Richmond became one of my reasons. I kept going, no, no, I think I've got another year in me because I think we're coming, we're good, but this is going to happen and, and so forth. So it was I, I found that my reason um, changed all the time. It wasn't what people might think. It's like, oh, I've got kids or I've got this or I've got that. It was just like, yeah. no, sometimes it was my footy team, sometimes it was my dog. And I had a variety of reasons and sometimes it had more than one. Yeah. And um, so this pattern continues for me to this day because, you know, I, I live with suicidal thoughts daily. The thing about the book then, I guess, for you is the, the just one reason and, and finding one reason for you to continue going on and as it turns out Stuart it is a book that not only must have been very good for you to write yourself but also for those that read this book um are you happy with the response that it's had amazing um I'm, I'm probably uh I don't know that I'm overwhelmed like I used to be Greg but um I I, I was still continually surprised of where it ends up and the stories that continue to come out of uh the book it's just amazing. I can't. I just can't believe that one person can create something that I thought was pretty simple that ends up being actually very, very powerful. Like I never, in a million years, thought that, that this could happen. Mm. So well, uh, it's, it's you've, good. you've created, I guess, through through these experiences that you've shared with readers so honestly. And I guess honesty is a big part of all this, Stuart. It establishes trust with the reader quickly, mm. and, and I feel like, um, and the book talks about that that aspect as well as that like the book's not going to judge you and you can tell it what you want and think what you want and it's never going to give it's not going to pigeonhole you in any particular way so the book does its own unique thing for each person all by itself mm -hmm. and, and I feel uh there's trust that's gained quickly and then the person who trusts might be more inclined to use uh the tools that are presented in the book mm -hmm. as opposed to you know if it's a big thick um novel um, type book then you know I'd always thought that when you're really feeling uh, shit about yourself you probably don't want to read 300 pages but you might get through a mini book of 80 pages and, and it's proved to be correct yeah it's it's brilliant and for, for listeners um, just one reason by Stuart O'Neill it's a small compact book that you could put in your pocket and carry with you everywhere you go because it's a toolkit it is a book that can help you at any time during the day when you're feeling you may need some inspiration. 
Now, the trouble, I guess, with the world, you know, we keep here social media, we do hear a lot of negative things going out there in the world, Stuart. But do you feel as though this inclination to self-harm is becoming worse and more prevalent these days? For all the efforts that are being made collectively, you know, with um, ourselves, Lifeline, Beyond Blue and, and organisations, is I reckon it's getting worse. And 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 I and I I clearly point my finger at government at all levels mm. um, for probably being the single biggest contributor to suicide, certainly in Australia. But from the things that I hear through one-on-one conversations, is that you know, just for example, like in the military, um, I've since met soldiers, for, former soldiers from Singapore, America, Ireland, UK, America, Australia. They've all got the same the same story. Yes, and they feel like that as soon as they have no value anymore. They're just cut off like a footy player's done his ACL and they're just turfed out and left for themselves. And, you know, I have a fellow that I see probably every two weeks who'd be early 80s and and more often than not our conversation ends in tears <clears throat> and he's still battling things 50 years later. And, and, that, and he was New Zealand Army. And so... You, you, you look at that as just one example of going like this is this is a universal problem mm. across the world with military mm. people yep. that are just discarded like bits of shit, you know, yep. at the end of their service. And I find that absolutely disgusting. And mm. so I think collectively, um, you know, even I've I've, I've got a, a medical condition um, at the moment that's ongoing, and so I was all scheduled for surgery uh, in October, mm. and so. You know, it takes a bit of, and it hasn't affected me like that. It's made me suicidal. It's more to try and give you a long-winded, winded answer. Mm. Is uh, and I was all ready to get things in place and whatever, and then at four o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, the hospital rings me and says, "Oh, we've had to reschedule." No worries, that's okay. I'll, you know, what else am I going to do? I can't tell them to piss off over the phone. Anyway, so rescheduling to them uh, was I didn't hear another word until eight days ago, and they said, well, "You've got, we've got you in next Wednesday." Now, I can't do next Wednesday. No. So I, so I rang up. This is all part of the, the answer, Greg. So I rang up to try and talk to someone at the hospital. They said in their computer voice, the estimated wait time is 45 to 60 minutes. No. So when you've got a job, I can't just put the phone on hold and keep going about what I'm going to do for 40. So all mm. these little things, Greg, I just feel like bit by bit, um, humans are just being treated by, like pieces of crap by government collectively. And and that really fucks with your mental health. Yes. And and they can change a few things with a bit of care, but but they just don't. It's getting worse. Yes. Yes. It's absolutely. Yeah. Until the government, which I don't think is ever going to change, until mm. the government actually wakes up from their their position, you know, like during your time down in there in Melbourne, is you know to think what what mental health, you know, the flow and effects when people got banned from playing golf. Mm, 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 like mm. really, we got banned in in my state here. We got banned from surf lifesaving. Yes, that's what I was going to ask you about that because these are these are these are things that people do that are good for mental health, be it uh, the ocean, playing golf, or sport, or anything else. I was going to get to you about the ocean. Of course, you're still a surf lifesaver, or you have been in the past. No, yeah, I have. I hung up my cap uh, not last Christmas, the Christmas before. It had just uh, I don't know, like I felt like there's parts of me that were now the liability on the beaches that you're, you're just as likely going to be rescuing me so I could still have my skills yeah. in other areas on the beach. But I lost my passion yeah. and partly uh, that was due to government and surf life savings response to COVID. 
and how they treated their members, it really, really it knocked the wind out of my sails to see the nastiness that happened not only within my club but right across the country with how they just discarded volunteers and treated them like shit if they wouldn't get the, um, the double jab. So that that was the end for me. I, I stayed on, but but my brain had already checked out and, and my, my stomach checked out long ago. I would recommend to listeners that in the meantime, get a hold of uh, Stuart O'Neill's Just One Reason. It is a wonderful toolkit, a brilliantly written book because it comes from the heart. It's a raw and unfiltered book has been, has been said about it and it's designed to help. So what could be a better reason than getting a hold of this wonderful book? Stuart, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your story with listeners of uh, the Last Post Radio Show podcast. We do appreciate it very much. No worries, Greg. I'm, I, I love being invited onto shows like this because every little bit helps. Every little bit helps. Profound, poignant words from Stuart. Every little bit helps. Yes, true enough, Gary. And we thank Stuart for coming on and sharing his story on the last post-radio show. And that's where we wrap it up for another episode, Greg. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly learnt a lot myself here. So uh, it's worthwhile seeking out that book by Stuart O'Neill. Yeah, well said, Gary. Well said. And uh, once again, thanks to Stuart. It's, um, it's a book that's much needed. Oh, I forgot to say, Gary, you say you're learning. Well, I'm learning all the time, of course, being opposite you, you legend, and learning, of course, things that I thought I knew but I'd forgotten that never knew. Well, it certainly makes sense to me. <laughs> Whatever it was that you just said, I thank you. Uh, yeah, it's getting late. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, thank you, ball boys. Thank you, ball girls. See you for episode five. 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 That'll be nice. The last post-radio show. That'll be nice, dear. Nice.